0: It's been called the gift of life. But here's the catch. You only have one shot to give it. Cord blood and tissue banking is a topic many moms and dads confront as they approach the birth of their baby. There's a healthy amount of skepticism and debate over whether or not it's really worth the cost. There are public and private options available, but the private options aren't cheap. And it's all for the assurance that if your child faces a life-altering illness, this unique type of medical investment may be able to save his or her life. Joining me today is Dr. Mitchell Cairo, a cord blood expert with the American Academy of Pediatrics. All right, let's get to it. This is Pre-Motherhood with Teresa Priolo. From New York
1: City, USA, welcome to the Fox 5 Podcast Network.
0: Dr. Cairo, this is a topic that is so interesting to me. And it's one that uh, when we talk about cord blood uh, and tissue banking, I wasn't aware that this was even a thing until I met with my OBGYN who handed me a pamphlet about this and said, is this something that you are considering uh, when you give birth, which I'm about to give birth in the next month or so. And so I was wondering, thank you. Thank you. Let's hope this is a quick and easy and pain-free. That's what I'm hoping for. But um, when it comes to cord-blank banking, for those who are not familiar with the practice uh, and have never heard of it before, especially expectant moms, can you just give us an overview of what this is?
1: Sure, so uh, we and others discovered uh, maybe about 30 years ago that cord blood is very rich in um, cells. That are important both for uh, functions of the bone marrow and the immune system, but also are rich in cells that might uh, be called uh, early stem cells that potentially can give rise to all the tissues in the body. And so, uh, in the early 90s or so, um, several groups started uh, collecting and banking cord blood initially to allow patients who need a bone marrow transplant, but don't have a tissue matched uh, family donor, whether we could use unrelated cord blood that had been collected and stored and screened and whether that could serve as an alternative source for uh, bone marrow transplantation from another human donor. And so that started the field off in the mid 90s, and now today, give or take, uh, there are probably over 800 to 850 thousand cord blood collections that had been done and are stored in public banks that uh, patients and their physicians can now access uh, for use of patients who are in need in a bone marrow transplant that don't have another donor. Um, and then the second part of it, as I alluded to earlier, is that over the last 15 or so years, we and others have demonstrated that there are cells in cord blood that are very early stem cell like cells that could give rise to other tissues in the body and could be potentially used in the future for regenerative therapy. And that is the second reason one might want to consider uh, cord blood collection and banking.
0: It seems like cord blood is one of the new hot topics that people are starting to talk about this well, more and more. Why uh, do you think that I'm is? I'm
1: a little bit biased in my answer um, because I'm an investigator in the area, but you know, this is sort of a gift of life. It uh, was a product that was normally thrown away after the delivery with the placenta intact. And now people are discovering that it has important cellular uh, properties that uh, might be utilized either within their own family or certainly more importantly for other needy patients around the world. Uh, And it's otherwise a throwaway product uh, that's normally discarded. So it's gained a lot more interest uh, as the success of using this has been in the last 25 years Uh, for uh, alternatives for bone marrow transplantation.
0: So before we talk about what it can actually be used for, uh, can you tell our listeners how you go about actually getting it? It stands to reason that if we're talking about cord blood, it's coming from the umbilical cord, but there's also the idea of tissue attached as well. So can you tell us how it's harvested?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. So predominantly, um, it's collected after... Uh, the baby is born. And then, uh, in the next, uh, out quick, but certainly the next five to 15 minutes, the placenta is delivered after the baby is born. And at that time, the obstetrician then, uh, um, separates the placenta in the umbilical cord so that it's no longer with the baby. And then the baby's fine theoretically, uh, if there's no uh, perinatal uh, complications. The placenta then would normally have been discarded. However, if you request that the cord blood be collected, then right there in the delivery room, uh, techniques have been developed uh, sterilely where the uh, vessels within the umbilical cord uh, can be stuck with a needle and the blood that's still retained within the umbilical cord blood between the uh, umbilical cord and the placenta can be aspirated out and collected. And uh, on the average, uh, it's between two and four ounces of cord blood that can be collected. It's put into a transfer bag and that transfer bag then is sent sterile to a cord blood bank where it then goes through its processing.
0: Is that different than the tissue
1: so tissue there are other methodologies um, where one can uh, take tissue either from the placenta or from the umbilical cord blood those are not common practices those would be very specific uh, either companies or research investigations where they want to uh take specific tissue uh from either one of those um organs uh for uh purposes of research um in a variety of areas but that's a relatively uncommon um occurrence
0: so once you have ha- have harvested this blood which as you said it is the gift of life and you only have one shot to do it right so you you do it at delivery or you don't do it at all, there's no going back and saying, hey, well, I'm, I might want that. Can I have it back? It's, it's, this you is know, a one-shot no deal. There's no going back
1: because it uh, will immediately clot and be, if you don't do it within the first few minutes after delivery, it's, it's no good after that.
0: So then that leads me to my next question because delayed cord clamping is such a big topic these days. Can you have both? There are many physicians and certainly moms who are proponents of delaying the cord clamping so that some of those nutrients or vital elements can get into the baby um, as the baby is experiencing skin to skin with mom? So, how do you do both? Can you do both, or do you really just have to choose the benefit, the immediate benefit, versus what potentially could be the long term insurance?
1: Yeah, that is a really excellent question. Very astute on your part to ask that question. So we generally do not recommend um, doing anything specific regarding the clamping uh, after the baby is born. Uh, The last thing we want in the cord blood collection process is to harm the baby in any way. This should be a harmless procedure. So studies have shown that even if you do delayed cord clamping, meaning that you want as much of the cord blood to go back into the baby, you still will be able to get an adequate amount of cord blood that's still left within the cord and the placenta for whatever purposes that you might want to use it for, for transplantation or uh, other types of cell therapy. So we don't recommend anything that would uh, put the baby at risk. So you can do delayed cord clamping and still get an adequate amount of cord blood, if you want to do that after the clamp is done.
0: And when it comes to the American Academy of Pediatrics, what is the threshold in terms of time? So there are some moms who like to wait up to or ask their doctors to wait up to five minutes or so to clamp. Uh, That, that of course, is up to the physician. But in terms of also being able to have the best of both worlds, is there a standard that uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics suggests in order to be able to have both?
1: The Academy doesn't make any specific recommendations on the timing of the clamping. What, what we basically recommend is that between the obstetrician and the mother, they make a decision on what they're going to do. But regardless of the time that they choose, there still should be an adequate amount of cord blood still within the placenta and the cord blood for a uh, adequate collection to be
0: performed. So now let's talk about what it's used for because this is the real crux of this. Th- this is where m- moms have to make the decision whether or not it's worth it. I have heard that everything from childhood cancers to cerebral palsy and autism could potentially be cured or mitigated from the stem cells that are uh, taken from the cord blood what are the most known uses for this and where is the research headed?
1: Well, that's a heavy question. It has lots of uh, ramifications. I'll try to walk through each one of them. So what we do know now for sure is that if there's a reasonable match between the cord blood and and a patient somewhere uh, on planet Earth, uh, that cord blood can be used as a replacement for bone marrow transplantation, meaning allogeneic bone marrow transplantation. Allogeneic is defined as another human donating to another human. Um, and that can be used for cancer and it can be used for non malignant diseases such as sickle cell disease or aplastic anemia where the bone marrow isn't working. Um, and many others. So that's already been proven. We and others have demonstrated that over the last 30 years. Um, So all the public banks, the ones that have, as I said, over 800,000 units, if there's a reasonable match and a reasonable dose of cells for any given patient, um, that is something that should be explored if that's the best treatment option that's chosen by the patient's physician. What's under investigation now is the second part of your question which is kin cord blood that's been collected and stored be used for what we call regenerative purposes. Regenerative meaning that it's going to restore the health of tissue that has been damaged in the baby themselves, where the cord blood came for. So in that sense, we use the word autologous. Autologous means your own or self. So the question is, if you stored your own baby's cord blood, could it be used for damage that might occur either at birth or later on in life? And those studies are ongoing, such as cerebral palsy, uh, particularly those where the damage occurs right at birth um, and other uh, uh, diseases where restoring normal tissue might be a method such as in trauma uh, of, of healing. The, all of those are under investigation. There is no approved or scientifically agreed upon, um, use of autologous cord blood for any of these regenerative purposes. But it is highly under investigation across the globe and over the next uh, five to ten years hopefully we will find that this may in fact be the case uh, as, as these studies are come to fruition
0: everything from congenital heart defects to traumatic brain injuries possibly type 1 diabetes there are ongoing studies about that um, it, it seems like all of the trigger illnesses trigger um, t- t- I guess Trigger scenarios, if if that's the best way of put it, What well, best way to put it, I, it seems as though those are the ones that researchers are really honing in on, and maybe that is because they're the most prevalent, or maybe that's because that what that's what gets the most buzz and gets parents the the most um, interested in learning about the practice. But it, it seems like there is a growing list of things that this could be used for if the research advances.
1: Yes, I think that um, again, given my interest in the field and being a little bit subjective in answering the question, um, there are many opportunities now to explore where cord blood can be applied um, for autologous purposes, uh, including uh, genetic uh, manipulation, um, where if one had collected the cord blood and it was stored in later to find out someone has a genetic disease, whether those cells in the cord blood can be genetically corrected and given back uh, to the patient uh, later on in life. So there's a number of areas that are being pursued here. And um, it's still a little early to know whether they they uh, some or all will be fruitful. Um, but it's an intense area of investigation.
0: What about the difference between public and private cord blood banking? Uh, that also seems to be the one of the hot topics, and I know that um, the American Academy of Pediatrics also has some guidelines on that as well. What is the difference between public and private, and what does the Academy recommend? Yes,
1: yeah, so that is a uh, very important topic. So basically the public banking means that a parent decides they're going to donate the cord blood for the benefit of the public good and that it will become available to all patients throughout the world who are in need of a bone marrow transplant and don't have an alternative donor, and that particular cord blood is a good match and has a good cell dose. So when one donates to the public good or a public bank, it means that you're trying to help somebody else in the world. And there are a lot of cord blood transplants that have been done, and a lot of patients have been saved due to the uh, the goodness of people donating their cord blood uh, to a public bank. When you uh, donate to a private bank, we also use the word directed donor banking. That means that the cord blood is only being collected, and will be only at the discretion of the family for uses by the family. Now that can be in the cases where that family has an affected child who is in need of a bone marrow transplant, and this might actually be a very good match for them. Uh, they may have another child with leukemia or sickle cell disease or aplastic anemia. So you would consider directed donor banking for that purpose because you know there's a good chance um, that the cord blood is going to be used for another member of the family. The other reason you would consider directed or private banking is for what we discussed earlier that you're hoping that the future is going to prove that cord blood can be used for the baby themselves later on in life for unknown purposes that may come about because of scientific research. So at the end to get to the last part of your question, the Academy still feels now at the third uh, uh, position uh, paper that they published. I've been involved in all three that there's definite evidence. That uh, cord blood does work for family donors. And if you have a family uh, member who is in need of a transplant like another child that you should strongly consider director or uh, private banking but for the vast majority of others where that doesn't exist, they still recommend that if you're going to do cord blood banking, it should be done for the public good and it should be donated to a public bank. The only caveat to that would be, and this only happens in in a small number of cases, is that if you already know, and I'll give you an example that the cord blood for directed or private banking is going to be used for a research trial, that that would be reasonable to do in that setting. So as an example, if the baby is born and looks like right at birth is going to have severe neurological problems, and there is an ongoing research trial that they already know about that might be using that cord blood for regenerative therapy for the baby that has neurological damage. The Academy says that's reasonable to have that done for directed donor banking. But outside of that research known purpose or for known family member, the Academy strongly recommends that people support the public banks for the greater good of the public.
0: When it comes to who it can be used for, uh, you said family members, but let's branch that out a little bit. Who within the family can benefit from this?
1: Well, that's another uh, great question. So right now we have very strong scientific evidence that will definitely benefit a brother or sister of that particular baby. But there is the possibility on rare occasions that it could help a parent uh, as well of uh, that baby. If, for instance, that parent has leukemia or lymphoma and it's ultimately in the need of a transplant and there's no other available donors. Only rare cases where that has been done, The 99% of the time um, it's been shown to be quite successful for brothers and sisters who have um, cancer or other uh, non-malignant lethal uh, diseases.
0: So if you decide to do this and if you decide to go the private route, let's say, uh, is Because you only have a finite amount of blood that's collected, is this a sort of a one-time deal? Or uh, when these cells are stored, are they in some way multiplied or uh, is there a a way to use it for future diseases? Let's say, God forbid, your child has um, something life-altering like a childhood cancer and then somebody else in the family, a brother or a sister, also has something else that might require or use the um, the, the stem cells. Is this a one-time shot in terms of how you can use it?
1: Another great question. Uh, we need to put you on some scientific board. I think you're really <laughs> on. Okay.
0: I'm just inquisitive, uh, because so, I'm going through it myself, so.
1: Yeah. So when we designed the cord blood um, bags back in the '90s. Uh, Dr. Kurtzberg and myself, uh, we decided to think about the question that you're asking now. So traditionally, when the final product of the core blood is stored and frozen, it's frozen in two aliquots, Uh, maybe different in some other areas, but for the most part in the United States, um, there's an aliquot that has 80%, and then there's an aliquot in the bag that has 20%. And we did that, uh, for the very reason you asked the question, which is, is it possible to use some of the cord blood? Um, for one purpose, but still have other part of the cord blood uh, to use either because we want to expand or change the dynamics, uh, or the genetics, uh, and genetic edit or expand or whatever, um, science, uh, has uh, evolved to so that right now, the, the cord blood is frozen into aliquots, which means it could be used for multiple purposes.
0: Okay, and that's great. That's great to hear that if you decide to embark on this journey, it's you're not paying for many years for the possibility of a one-time use. Uh, th- there may be multiple uses for it uh, for multiple people, which as an insurance policy seems like you get a little bit more bang for your buck. Yes. My last question for you, and um, this is one that I know I've struggled with because when when I found out how much the private cord blood banking costs, I was really taken aback because, as I have mentioned, it seems to be an insurance policy. But from my research, this can cost thousands of dollars up front and then roughly about a thousand dollars or so a year going forward, which is quite a hefty expense for most people why is this so expensive to do is it because this is such a state-of-the-art treatment and and the research is really so young on this why is it so pricey
1: well it's a good question and and my answer is not going to be to uh, defend or support uh the private banks that i have no uh relationship or equity interest in any of these um, but there is a cost involved, even if it's uh, a public bank. Well, the, the donor doesn't see the cost. Somebody fronted the cost, because at the end of the day, when that public cord blood is used, there's a charge that the bank does to the transplant center and actually the patient, uh, their insurance company, etc. Uh, to purchase that uh, public cord because that money is used to actually pay for all the other cords that have been processed and collected. So the the cost involved includes, you know, the actual uh, creating the kit and then the processing of the cord blood. Uh, The red cells are traditionally removed. There's a series of testing that needs to be done for sterility. Uh, and genetic diseases to make sure that that cord blood isn't going to pass on a genetic disease. There are infectious disease tests that are done to make sure infection isn't passed on. And then and the public banks, we do tissue typing on all of them to know what the tissue type is if someone wants to use it. Sometimes that's also done at the private banks. And then you have to freeze it. It's frozen down to minus 170 degrees. It's stored in a cord blood freezer, it has to be monitored. So there are a lot of costs associated with it. I'm not justifying it, uh, but it's not a simple collect and then put it in the freezer uh, like a popsicle. Uh, it goes through a series of separations and processing and characterization um, and testing to mainly protect the recipient who's going to receive it. And there's a cost associated with it. So those costs are realized as well. On the public side, the way they're paid for is that um, when those courts are given out, the the uh, recipient and the insurance company, the recipient and the hospital have to purchase that and they pay for that part of the public cost. Whereas in the private, um, if it's not being used at all, then ultimately the family that's uh, donating and, uh, ends up with the cost. And, you know, it's um, the question really that you're asking is, you know, on the directed donor side where there's no family that's ill that meets it at the moment, that's an individual decision of whether you want to invest in something for the promise of the future that's not here today. And that's a cost. Uh, that uh, each individual has to decide whether they want to make that investment in. Again, the Academy is not recommending that at the moment uh, until there's more scientific data showing that autologous cord blood will be successful for regenerative purposes.
0: All right, Dr. Cairo, I think we should leave it there. Dr. Mitchell Cairo, thank you so much for your insight on this with the American Academy of Pediatrics. It is such an important topic, and it seems to me that with the buzz that this issue is getting, especially in the last few years, that um, it may at some point become standard that this is what is done, even if it is, in fact, just donated to the public bank, which is free. Uh, How nice would that be?
1: That would be very nice. Mm
0: All right, thank you very much, sir. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Pre-Motherhood with Teresa Priolo is part of the Fox Five Podcast Network. This episode was recorded, edited, mixed, made awesome by Matt Onimus. The executive producers are myself, Matt Onimus, and Imad Ashgar. Byron Harmon is VP of News, and our Vice President and General Manager of Fox Five is Lou Leone. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments, you just want to say hi, reach out to me on Twitter at Fox Five Teresa or on Facebook. Teresa Priolo and why, and stay tuned for our next episode.